Good morning, church. I told the, uh, the first crowd, I commended them for, for gathering at, for an 8.30 service on a snowy day, the day after a time change. I told them I was very impressed with them, but I'll tell you, you are smart. You came to the late service. That seems to make so much more sense to me. Don't tell them I told you. If you will open your copy of God's Word, open to the book of the Gospel book of John, John chapter 1. We'll be looking at a variety of scripture this morning, most of which will be up on the screens behind me. But I would encourage you to try to anchor these truths to the scripture that, that we're seeing. Don't take it from me. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are not prepared to hear your word unless you help us. So, Father, my prayer is that this morning you would accomplish by your spirit what only you can accomplish. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law and help us to see how we can become doers of this word, not just hearers only. Father, my prayer is that this morning, that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, be forgotten. Only let your truth remain. Let it, plant, let it be planted deeply into our hearts and let it bear great fruit in our lives that all would see and consider you. Do all this for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, over the last couple of months, we have been trying to get our minds around the scope, the, the huge scope of the gospel. We've been asking some very simple questions, questions like, what is it? And perhaps uh, for many of us, a new question, how does this impact our daily lives? What does this mean for me on Tuesday afternoons? You know, for many of us, we we know what the gospel is. We know that the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But for so many of us, we struggle at making it practical. Sure, we're, we're glad and we're thankful for the, for the practical comfort that comes from knowing on a Tuesday afternoon that if I'm in Christ, I don't have to fear hell. We're thankful for that, that that's practical. But other than that, what, is the, what does the gospel have to do with your Tuesday afternoons? If y'all can click into my slide presentation for me up there. What does it have to do with our Tuesday afternoons? We have we've been seeing that the gospel is not only the power of God to save sinners, which it is, but we have also seen that the gospel is the power by which God changes sinners. We've seen how this works some, that, that as we grow in the knowledge of who God is and of who we are, we're given new opportunities to believe the gospel. We, we get a chance to see that, that God is much greater than we imagined and that we are much more sinful than we imagined. That the gospel is so amazing that it fills such a great gap. 
but it seems so scandalous. The gospel is so scandalous that we struggle to believe it. We struggle to believe what it says about us, that, that we are as bad as God says we are. And we struggle to believe what it says about God, that God is as good as he says that he is. And so we drift, we forget. We have been, we've been calling this the, the gospel drift. It's a New Testament phenomenon that continues in the church even to today where Bible-believing Christians who, who even gather for, for worship, we are prone to drift away from the realities of the gospel, which are the power for our lives and our, our very identity. It's, it's what we need in order to live. So the solution that, that I have been arguing that, that the Bible gives us, that the solution for us is to believe the promises of the gospel, to believe in the promises of the gospel. Over the last couple of weeks, we have, we have been talking about this incredible gospel truth of passive righteousness. passive righteousness, that, that in Christ you are forgiven and accepted. Forgiven and accepted. God has not just paid off your sin debt, but he's credited your bank account with all of Jesus' good deeds. He hasn't just paid off your debt, he has also credited your account with Jesus' good deeds. The glory of this is that this frees us from the burden of having to work or to work to gain or to keep God's approval that, that in Christ we are not just forgiven but we are accepted so we are freed up from having to get God's approval for ourselves. And today we're going to look at the gospel from a different angle. We're gonna, we're gonna consider the same gospel but we're gonna be looking at it from a different aspect. Some have said that, that the gospel is like a diamond, that you can look at it from all different angles and see new beauties and see it in new, exciting ways. And so the, the same gospel that we're gonna look at today, we're gonna see a new part of it, and that is the gospel truth of adoption. Which means that, that for those of us who have saving faith in Christ, that, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters into the household of God. Now what we're going to see is that, that adoption, is, it's not my idea, this is not an illustration that I'm simply bringing to you this morning. Adoption is a rich and beautiful biblical idea. It's a biblical analogy that describes our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's, it's all over the Bible, but there are a couple places that we can start by looking at. The first is, as we've read John chapter 1, where we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to what? Become children of God. Also in 1 John chapter 3, when, when, when John says, Hey, do you want to see what God's love is like? We'll see this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What? That we should be called children of God. And this is a doctrinal reality that, that God intends for you and I to understand and to richly dwell in, to take great comfort in. Jesus knew that this would be 
difficult for his disciples that they would be tempted to feel and to live like orphans. And so that's why he told them in John chapter 14, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come for you. I'm going to come for you. But let me ask you a question. How much comfort this week did the biblical doctrine of adoption give you? How, how much were you comforted by this this week? I mean, surely you don't think that, that passive righteousness is the only applicable truth, right? Surely it's not just passive righteousness that is helpful for us on Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock, right? In fact, I think there's even a case to be made that, that the privilege of adoption is even a higher privilege than that of justification. And that's because adoption is what makes us sons of God. I'm getting somewhat ahead of myself, but luckily for us, we have, uh, we have real concrete examples of what adoption is like. We, unlike passive righteousness, which can be perhaps hard to understand, we see adoption in our society all all around us. And so we have some examples which are helpful to keep in mind. So in order to do that this morning, I'd like to share with you the true story of a little boy named Kenaniah. This picture was taken in 2010 when Kenaniah was an orphan. Actually, he was just one of many of the orphans who were living in the Ethiopian orphanage where he spent the first five months of his life. I'm sure that the nurses and the caretakers, I'm sure that the nurses and the caretakers who were there did the best that they could. Can we, can we work on it? I'm sure that the caretakers and the nurses did the best that they could to divide their time evenly among all the babies who, who needed to be held and who needed to be touched, who needed to be changed and who needed to be fed. But, but this orphan was just one of many. He, 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 he was a child who for, who for whatever reason did not have parents to care for him. A little boy with no parents and no siblings, no bedroom, no, no toys of his own, and no earthly future. And even though he didn't know it, Keen and I had been left on his own. An infant who had nothing to offer the world, no, no skills, no, no resources. He was, he was fatherless. He had no one to help him. He, there's nothing that he could do to provide for himself. So what do you think are the worldly prospects for an African orphan living in a third world country? I mean, what do you think his education is going to be like? What do you think his social development will be like? What, what will his medical care be like? Who, who's going to care for him when he cries? Who's going to help him learn to speak and to, to face the world? Who's going to tell him about Jesus? If Kenan I is, is left as an orphan, what do you think his inheritance will be like? Well, the good news is, is that Kenan I was not left as an orphan. When he was five months old, Kenan I was legally adopted into his new family. 
And in one day, everything about his life changed. Kenan and I was given a, a family. He was given a father. He was given a mother who would care for him and would give him all that he needs. And he was given a new name. Kenaniah Abebe Williams Cook. And he became, in a moment, an American citizen. Now Kenaniah is an all-American boy growing up in, in North Carolina. He has, he has two brothers. He has two sets of grandparents. He has adoring aunts and uncles and a slew of cousins who, who love him. Now he has parents who will give him all that he needs. And Kenan I now has, he has more than a new family. He has a new future because he has been adopted. He's, he's no longer an orphan, but instead he is, he's become a son with all the rights and all the privileges that that sonship entails. You see, church, the Bible teaches us that, that in the gospel, God adopts us into his family and gives us all the rights that are part of being called a child of God, of being called a child of God. And so I think for us this morning, it's helpful to start with a definition. Adoption is it's something that we're familiar with, but we need to think about it in detail. Adoption is a, a legal process where a person chooses to welcome a child into his family, and in doing so, agrees to take on all of the responsibility for that child, while at the same time giving him all the advantages and privileges that are a part of being a member of that family. Now, I know that that's a lot to, to try to follow, and so we'll, we'll walk through it much more slowly. And we're going to see how adoption explains some of the glorious spiritual realities that we as believers in Jesus Christ get to enjoy. And then, of course, we'll think about a couple of implications in this. So let's start with thinking about what adoption is. Just as we said with, with passive righteousness, it's a theme. Adoption is a theme that goes all throughout, especially the New Testament. And it appears in many different places. But I think a good key place to start is back in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. One thing I'd like to point out right away that we should notice, that contrary to American kind of folk religion, not everyone is a child of God. Did you know that? Not everyone is a child of God. You're not a child of God just because you're a human or just because you have, you have been born. You have to be born again, right? It's, sonship is it's not a status that is universally enjoyed. Instead, it's a, it's a special status that's given only to those who receive Christ. Think about it. This is why Jesus said that no one can come to who? The, the Father. You can't come to the Father except through Jesus. You see, by being, being God's child is not brought about through natural birth. It only comes through spiritual birth. Sonship is not natural. Sonship is adoptive. But what's that mean? What, what, what is it that exactly happens in adoption? Well, let me draw your attention to to three things that take place in adoption. 
The first is this. Adoption involves a change in our legal status. Right? Adoption is a legal thing. You may have noticed that part of our definition this morning is that adoption requires some legal transaction. It's easy to see, right? There are, there are lawyers who focus all of their efforts on adoption because it's a legal affair. There is a transfer of authority that takes place. It's a transfer of authority which is legally recognized. For example, when my nephew Keenan Isle was adopted, he was he, was, he went from being under the authority and the care of the state and the orphanage to being under the care and the authority of his parents and the American government, right? And more than that, it's, it's not just that there's a transfer of authority, but there's a new legal obligation. And now his parents have agreed to become legally responsible for his welfare. If Keenan I needs clothes, where does he get them? Right? His parents will pay for them. His parents will buy them. If he needs braces, they will pay for them. Right? Isn't this a great deal? Isn't this a great deal for the kids? Mom and dad get the orthodontist bill, and the once orphan gets a bedroom. The son gets a seat, a permanent seat at the table. In adoption, the parents agree to take on all the obligations and all the, the liabilities that come with the child, and yet the child gets a new name. The parents take on a new responsibility, and the child takes on new privileges. And we, church, we've seen this is, this is exactly what God does for us in the gospel. We've been talking about justification, right? This, this big churchy word, this, which is a legal term that describes that Christ takes our debts and then he gives us his righteousness. Christ takes our liabilities and instead gives us his assets. And what do we do to earn it? Nothing. What did Keen and I do to earn his sonship? Nothing. He sat in an orphanage and he was chosen. In Christ, He has chosen to adopt us and all of our problems with us. He's adopted us with our liabilities, our severe sin disability. Our problems have become His problem. Our debts have become His burden, and Christ paid them off to make us right with Him. Don't you see? Don't you see the beauty here that, that Christ willingly took on himself all of the baggage that we bring as orphans, all of the punishment that we deserve, that we have earned, all the suffering that we've earned for failing to obey, for failing to worship him. God has placed that upon his son. He then credited to us all the requirements that we need to, to be a part of the family of God. Every act of obedience, every act of obedience that we were required to perform, every expression of praise that we are obligated to give, Christ has done it for us. He's done it, he's done it all for us. And so what that means is that now that we are sons, we get all of the privileges that comes with being sons. And we'll come back to that later, but for now I want you to take note that adoption includes a change 
in legal status. But adoption is also a change in our relational status. It also includes a change in our relational status. We can see the glory of God's love on display in adoption. And that's why the truth of adoption is so glorious because it explains how God becomes our father. It explains how we get to relate to him as father. Now this is where the practical example of of my nephew Kenaniah breaks down because unlike Kenaniah, we were not adorable, innocent orphans sitting in an orphanage somewhere harmlessly waiting, right? That is not what we are like. The Bible does not teach that, that you and I were just not naturally born to be children of God. It teaches that we were far worse, that we were very messed up. If you remember that that the Bible teaches in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, that we were children of the devil. Right? That's not an affectionate term you use for your kids, right? Right? You don't, you don't even in bad, even on the bad days, right? That's not, that's not a term that you use for your kids, but but that's what is said about us before Christ. That's what that's what John teaches that that for all who do not practice righteousness, that those who do not love their brothers they're children of the devil. Has that ever been you? It's been me. Children of the devil. The Bible also says that we are, that we were children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, children of wrath because our deeds are are evil. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes on to say that we are sons of disobedience. So we see what type of inheritance we have, what what type of sonship that we naturally have. But oh, church, how extraordinary is the gospel that God takes his enemies. He takes his enemies and he makes us his sons. God takes the criminal and he gives him a bedroom. And God relates to, I mean, think about it. When God relates to sinners, how does he do it? How does God relate to sinners? As a judge. He, he relates to sinners as only as a judge, a God of righteous wrath, a God of anger, and a God of justice. Yet in the gospel, God changes our status from being enemies, from being children of his wrath, to being children of his love. We go from being children, sons of disobedience, to being sons of God. He makes that change. Now we no longer have to relate to God as judge, but we relate to God as Father. He is the judge. God is the judge who did not only pardon a guilty criminal, and not only did he take on the punishment for himself, but he took the criminal home. He took him home. He took him in to his house. He gave him a bedroom and treated him as one of his own children. Just think of it. Just think of it. Do you know, do you believe, Christian, that part of your story is that you were once an enemy of God? A God-hater opposed to his kingdom, opposed to his law? That's what our sin is, and yet God has taken us into his home. How, how radical is this change? That in the gospel, the judge 
becomes the Father. Our judge becomes our Father. Think, think about a judge. A judge is, is impersonal and cold, yet a Father is loving. A judge hands out verdicts and punishment, but a Father gives gifts. We go from being enemies to being sons. We go from being criminals to being heirs of the divine inheritance. Do you see how adoption fundamentally changes our relationship with God? This is why Paul in Romans chapter 8, when he's speaking of our new identity as adopted sons and daughters, he says, you do not receive a spirit of slavery that, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, now we'll talk about these implications in just a moment, but let's, let's note one more thing about the nature of adoption. And that is, adoption involves a change in our rights. Because of adoption, we now have the rights of sons. This is, this is so exciting. Think about it like this. For Keenan and I, seven years have now passed since he was adopted into the Cook family. Now he has, he has two brothers. And I can assure you that Keenan and I has all the same rights that his brothers have. I, I get to enjoy Christmases with him and his brothers, right? They all get the same amount of presents. Keenan and I has a seat at the table. He is just as much of a cook as his brothers are. He has the same access to his mom. He has the same access to their dad, right? They play sports, he plays sports. They have a bedroom, Keenan and I has a bedroom. He has all of the same privileges as his brothers. Nothing, do you know what that means for you? F focus on this for a moment with me, church. Do you know who your older brother is? Jesus Christ is your older brother. Jesus Christ is your older brother, which means that if you are adopted into the family of God, you and I have all of the same rights and privileges that Christ has. We have all of the same access to the Father. We have all of the same inheritance. We have the same love. We have the same approval. We get the same acceptance. We get the same type of care. You see, if you are in Christ, the Bible teaches that what that means is that you are united to Him, that you are one with Him, which means struggling Christian, that God loves you just as much as He loves Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? You're not a second-rate member of the family. You are in Christ. And have you ever heard anything so amazing? No judge takes a murderer home to live with his family. No judge brings a murderer home and gives him the inheritance to be his son. You see, this is so extraordinary, so extravagant, that this is why it is so easy for you and I to drift away from the gospel. Because the gospel is so hard to believe. I mean, it just seems too good to be true. It just seems too good to be true. But if you are in Christ, this is true for you. 
this is your destiny. The Bible teaches that that the truth of adoption, that it is so extravagant, that it seems so unbelievable that it actually takes a miracle to believe. There are some here today who believe this, and there are some who do not. Some who are going to heaven, and some who will spend eternity in hell. It takes a miracle to believe the gospel. It takes a miracle to believe this truth. I mean, it seems to be good to be true, right? You can feel that now, right? How could it be? How could it be that I could believe that God is exactly as pleased with me as he is with Christ? That seems too scandalous to my timid heart. Way too difficult to believe. And so we struggle. And we end up living like orphans, with an orphan's mentality. This is why the Bible teaches that it takes a miracle to believe this, but we're not left on our own. This isn't, this isn't just figure it out. The Bible teaches that God has sent his spirit to dwell inside of us, and he makes us believe this. Look at Galatians chapter 4, one of the great adoption texts. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do, do you see it in this text? Since we are sons, God has given to us the same spirit as his son. And what does his spirit do? He teaches us to cry out. He cries out, Abba, Father. We're, we're, we're not slaves anymore. We're heirs. I, I, don't know how, how, I don't know how bored you are or what your life is like, but church, this is true. This is true. This is a true truth that you can, be, you, you can go from being slaves to being sons. Jesus knew that, that this is scandalous, and he knew that his newly adopted brothers would, would struggle to believe such an extravagant gospel promise. And that's why he told them in John chapter 14, I will not leave you as orphans. Don't live like orphans. I'm not, don't, don't think that you're orphans. I'm going to come to you. There is such a temptation for us who are Christians to to forget this. There is such a temptation for us to be Christians and even to believe the gospel, but then to function like orphans and not sons. This is where the gospel promise of adoption is so helpful for us on Tuesday afternoons at one o'clock because it affects how we function. You would live differently if you were an orphan or if you were the child of a king. So let's look at a couple ways that we can apply this truth, this adoption truth to our lives. There are many more, but we will just address three. That Christian, if you are adopted by God, then guess what? You're safe. There is no reason to fear. You're safe. Have you ever wondered why the Bible is so severely condemning of worry? Have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever wondered why the Bible teaches that you sin every time that you worry about your dentist appointment? And when you worry about your children? 
And when you worry about your test or your image or your health or your relationships, have you ever wondered why that is true? I mean, it seems just natural to be human, right? The reason that worry is so sinful is because you have a father. Because you have a father. And a child who worries doesn't trust his father. Worry is sinful because you have a father. And a child who worries does not trust his father. So what happens is that as we come to understand our new status as sons and our new status as daughters of the living God, what will happen is that we will develop a new sense of God's care for us that affects how we live, that affects how we struggle when the money is tight or when the relationship is falling apart or when we are afraid. Church, this is the solution to our anxiety and our worry. But this is where we have to believe the gospel. Remember, that's the solution to our problem with growth. We must believe the gospel in order to experience its power. That, you see, that here's how this works. That If we really believe who God is, that he is loving, that he is actually wise, that he is actually really good and that he's all powerful and that he's all knowing. And then if we also begin to believe that he relates to us as a father to a child, then what do we have to fear? Well, what could we possibly fear? Children of God are safe, even in death. And we dishonor him when we live like orphans. I remember how much effort it took for me to persuade my daughter, Karis, to take her out into the waves this past summer when we went to the beach. I'd been prepping her for this for months in advance, right? I was getting her, I was getting her ready. She hadn't been to the beach since she was a baby, so she didn't, she didn't remember it. And I was describing the sand and the waves and the salt and the horrific sunburns. But anyways, and I was preparing her for this, and I was hoping to continue a tradition that my father began that me and my sisters affectionately called bouncy bounce, right? Where my dad, my, my tall dad would take us as, as young children. He'd, he'd gather us up in his, uh, he, he's tall and he'd take us in his strong arms and he'd take us into the Atlantic Ocean where there's an undertow and there's a current and there's waves and sharks and jellyfish. Why do people go to the beach? I don't even know. I don't even know why people go to the beach. But we went and we had fun. And, and, and my dad, he would take us out into the waves and we'd go out deep where the water was crashing up over our chests and over our, our shoulders. And as each wave would come, my dad would lift up off the sand and he would float up over the top of the wave and it would come crashing safely down behind us. And so I was excited to do this with Karis and, and I, would, I, was, I was preparing her for it. But, and she was on board until she saw all the waves. Right, baby? I love you. Right? She was on board until she saw, she saw the waves. And, and, and then she wasn't going to have anything to do with it. Right? Addie, she didn't care. Right? She was going to swim to England. But, but Karis, she wanted to stay up in the sand where it was safe. And, and, and so it, it, took, it took time. She didn't want to be swept away. And no matter how much I reasoned with her, no matter how much I told her about my experience in the ocean and, and my strength and my height and my swimming ability, she wasn't interested. 
her fear of the waves was greater than her confidence in her father until the last day, and we had a ball, right? That's what anxiety and fear is. When our fear of our circumstance is greater than our confidence in our Father. When, when we lose sight of God's power and when we lose sight of His goodness and we fail to treat Him as a Father. Fears for orphans, not for sons. It has no place in the Christian life, which is why it dishonors our Father. This is why Jesus told the disciples, remember he said, he said, you don't need to live like the world. You don't need to be anxious like they are about all the things in their, in their lives, right? You have a father, and your father knows what you need even before you ask him. Orphans worry about their future. They, they probably should. But sons have a father. They trust their father. Orphans work frantically to fix their own problems, to solve it themselves. But sons just pick up the phone and call dad, right? He'll fix it. You see, when life gets hard, orphans assume the worst because they're on their own. But sons can trust their father's goodness, even in the dark. Orphans have... They, they have good reason to be anxious about the needs of their lives because they are on their own. But sons trust the sovereign provision of God. Sons trust the sovereign provision of God. A second way that we can apply this to our lives is to see that if we're adopted by God, then we have access to Him. We have access to the Father. If you were to try to go speak to a federal judge, you would have to meet him in a courtroom and you would have to be standing as he comes in and sits down and then you would stand and you would address him in a specific way. You would call him your honor, right? You would address him in a specific way, but, but not, not a father. When you, when you speak to a father, what do you do? You, you bust into his bedroom. Sometimes in the middle of the night, right? Because your dolls need to go to the bathroom, right? You, you bust into the bedroom in, in the middle of the night just to ask him for a cup of water. See, that is the spirit of adoption. That, that's, what, that's what Paul speaks about so excitedly in Galatians chapter 4 and, and in Romans 8 when he says, you haven't received a spirit of slavery? You don't have any reason to, to fall back into to fear, right? You're not an orphan, You've received the spirit of adoption as sons, and now what do you do? You can cry, Abba, Father. It's a term of intimacy, a term of closeness. Because you are sons and daughters, church, God invites you to run to Him with your problems. He invites you to go to Him. He doesn't mock you because you think there's monsters under your bed. Right? And, and sure, guys, our fears are just as silly as the monsters under the bed. Right? Have you thought about that before? God doesn't, God doesn't mock you for your fears. He speaks tenderly. He speaks truthfully to you. He tells you what is true, and he tells you, trust me, you're safe. Child, there is nothing to fear. God isn't, he's not put off by your sin struggles. He, he knows those. God knew all about your guilt and all about your liabilities when he chose to predestine you in love before the foundation of the world. 
You and I are experiencing the consequences of our sin. God, through the Son, has already bore the full weight of our sin on the cross. He sees you and He loves you. He sees you as you are. Not Facebook you. He sees you as you are and He loves you. You don't have to hide. You don't have to hide from Him in your sin. You see, orphans feel insecure when they fail. They feel this constant need to measure up. But sons know that they are accepted by their father. We can do this even if we have earthly fathers. I, I'm reading a memoir from, from World War II, and one of the men said, he said, I if I could have anything in the world right now, I would just want my dad to write me a letter and say, I don't have to win any medals. We feel this constant need to measure up, even to our earthly fathers, and that's an orphan-like mentality. Orphans feel the need to measure up. They feel insecure when they fail, but sons know that they are accepted by their father as is. Orphans feel a constant need to perform, to make a name for themselves, but sons already have a name. They have the name of their father. It's already been given to them. Their I identity is secure. You have access to the Father, child. A third way that we see how this applies to our life is that if you have been adopted by God, then your future is bright. Your future is bright, even if your today is dark. Though our adoption gives us so many glorious benefits that we can enjoy today, though it has this anxiety-killing power, and though it, though it works in our lives in, in such a way to free us from all sorts of temptations and sins, we must also recognize that our ultimate privilege awaits us. The ultimate privilege of adoption awaits us in future days. And whatever joy we can know and experience now, we can be sure there is much more to come. What's been so encouraging to me as I've been studying this is to consider that I have the same inheritance as Christ, our brother. It's an inheritance that it's not going to be recognized here on earth. It's an inheritance that is waiting for us. Think, think about what Christ's life was like. Do you remember in Romans 8 when, when we read that, that if we are children, then heirs? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then it goes on to say, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You see, just like Christ, our brother, our lives are filled with suffering and filled with difficulties, but we know that like Christ, glory awaits. The doctrine of adoption plants in us the unshakable hope that no matter how insignificant you feel, no matter how mundane your life is, no matter how bad things seem to be going for you, that you have hope, that you have an inheritance in Christ with God. The doctrine of adoption plants within us an everyday, tangible, unshakable hope that enables us to endure our darkest difficulties. That no matter how dark your night is, I know that for many of us, we are in the dark of night. But the sun is coming. It will soon be 
dawn and there will be a day soon where our suffering will be over. But this is a promise that is only true if you are in Christ. If God is not your Father, if you are still opposed to His rule, if you're still trying to live to build your own kingdom, to find your identity outside of what God says about you, then the best you have is right now. Your best life is now. Suffering awaits. The glory of the gospel is that for all of us who have been alienated from God because of our sin, Christ has bridged the gap to bring us back to him. That is the truth of the gospel. That in Christ, God adopts his enemies as sons. And yet it's a truth that is so scandalous that many of us drift away from it. How many of you even thought of this truth this week? We're so prone to drifting away from it. We, we tend to live like orphans with an orphan's mentality, deeply anxious, deeply fearful and insecure. Yet for those of us who have been called out for mercy and who have placed our faith in Christ, who have given up our rights to run our own lives, we are forgiven and accepted as sons. Will you join me in prayer?